If you're a fan of Beholder, you probably love immersive experiences at the gaming table. So let me tell you about the Amulet of Life from the Imperial Forge. The Amulet of Life is a luxurious sparkly counter that lets you track hit points or other values from 0 to 999 with three mirror dials mounted on an exotic wood base. Available in four distinct designs, every amulet is embellished with stunning Swarovski crystals and are custom built to order. Plus, you can choose from five types of wood, pick gold or silver dials, and choose from a wide range of crystal colors. Basically, they're straight from a fantasy treasure trove. Behold Her listeners get 10% off their purchase with BEHOLD21. That's all capital letters, BEHOLD21. To customize your amulet of life, visit theimperialforge.com. Welcome to episode 18 of Behold Her, a podcast that showcases the diverse stories of femme gamers in tabletop. I'm your host, Lisa Penrose, and this episode is all about femme horror. Those who know me know that while I tremble at the thought of consuming horror in any other form of media, there's something about the horror genre in tabletop RPGs that I find impossibly alluring. I can't wait to share these conversations with you. I chat with Whitney Beltran, also known as Strix or The Strix, about designing Bluebeard's Bride, a tabletop spin on the classic and horrifying fairy tale. Then, horror GM extraordinaire Lauren Irwin, best known as That Salty Ginger, shares her fascination with the genre. Finally, Erica Fassett, best-selling tabletop writer, reads us a spooky tale written just for Behold Her. Erica's audio story is sponsored by Jeff Stevens Games, whose upcoming release, Adventures from the Pot-Bellied Cobalt, will hit drivethroughrpg.com in mid-April. Jeff Stevens Games is especially known for their great anthology projects that create opportunities for up-and-coming writers. Search Jeff Stevens Games on dmsguild.com or drivethroughrpg.com. If you're feeling the horror vibes this episode, might I recommend The Madhouse of Tasha's Kiss or Annalise's Revenge? All right, it's story time. Whitney Beltran is an award-winning narrative designer for video games and TTRPGs and is currently the project narrative director at Hidden Path Entertainment. In addition to writing for D&D's upcoming Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, fangirl squee here, Strix chats with us about designing Bluebeard's Bride and beyond. Hello, Strix. Thank you so much for joining me on Behold Her today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm very excited to be here. <laughs> yeah, so let's jump right in. To start us off, before we get into some lovely discussions of femme horror, our theme for this episode, uh, so tell me, how did you get into tabletop as a hobby? I was a lonely kid who had no friends, and the internet had just been born, and I discovered a play-by-post, actually, where you take turns just posting what happens in a completely fictional way. And that was my start. I moved to playing D&D a few times, sort of recreationally, and then I actually went straight to LARP. And I stayed in the LARP world for a long time. And then I popped back out and started doing freeform and uh, tabletop RPG design. And that was, gosh, I mean, a long time ago (laughs) at this point. (laughs) What do you think it was about the hobby that roped you in? Was it simply the social aspect or were there aspects of tabletop that really grabbed you? I definitely am interested in emotions. That's the big draw for me. Um, At first, it was modeling emotions, emotions that I maybe didn't really understand or like didn't understand how the containers worked. So I'd like role play in a game to see how it worked. And then I mastered it and I was like, haha, now I can have virtuosity with these emotions. And what can I create? What worlds can I create um, with other people? That's the part that is really important to me is like, if I just wanted to create worlds, I would go write novels. I want to have that lived dynamic moment to moment sort of like weaving that you do with another person's mind, right? When you're making stories together, that's a kind of magic and it's very powerful. You mentioned that you went from exploring it as a hobby to freeform design. And I think a lot of folks who listen to my podcast, by virtue of probably the tabletop industry in general, and also that I come from learning through Dungeons and Dragons, what is freeform RPG? 
Oh my goodness, I'm so excited you asked. So freeform RPGs are perhaps my favorite little shub genre. Freeform is basically halfway between a tabletop RPG and a LARP. Freeforms are usually very accessible, meaning they're easy to pick up and play immediately. You need to know nothing. They can range from one player to two players to 50 players. So they're really flexible and they're usually pretty short. They're like an hour to four hours. So they're great for con games. They're great for getting together with your friends. Zero prep, no prep. And there's actually an awards program that I used to be a judge of called the Golden Cobra Awards. And every year we get, you know, 50 to 75 entries in this contest for best freeform game. So we have hundreds and hundreds of free freeform games to play at goldencobra.org that I will plug right now. And they're amazing. My favorite, you're going to think I'm weird, is called Still Life. And it is you role-playing rocks through the ages and meditating until the end of time and the sun explodes and eats you. It is so fun. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, and now this is the theme of the episode. Um, <laughs> rocks. Wait, so what do you do in the game? So particularly in still life, you are sitting in a room and you are given like a question. And it could be like, what am I? Or who am I? Or like, why am I brown? Or why am I blue? You know, like kind of like meditative questions. And then... There's a facilitator and every few minutes the facilitator moves you like a ge geological event has moved the rocks and you can only talk to the rocks that are touching you. So you rotate touching other rocks and speaking to them over the course of like eons, right? In this like hour that you're playing uh -huh. and you, you ask them your question and they ask you their question and you like try to answer it for each other. I don't know. It's amazing. And maybe it's not everybody's speed, but I love freeform games and a particular. I mean, I life. feel like. I don't know what this says about me also, but I'm like, I would want to play that at least once because that sounds so bizarre, but also meditating on these questions, I feel like would really make you think in ways you're not used to thinking. I mean, maybe because you're being a rock and you're not used to being mm -hmm. a rock, but that sounds so cool. Do you remember the first Freeform game you created? The first Freeform game I created, uh, yes, I do remember and I named it Mobius because I thought I was real smart. But this freeform game was about three women who were at lunch together. And they were in different stages of relationships with men. So one was about to get engaged but concerned about doing it. One was married but having problems in her life with her marriage. And the other one was divorced. And they were in sort of this like triangle of relationship with each other like looking backward and forward through time at like, you know, their knowledge and their fears around marriage and being with men and, you know, the constraints of being a woman in this world, which is a theme for me, uh, obviously, because I wrote Bluebeard's Bride. And they were like projecting their needs onto each other. So they were like, they were also trying to get questions answered, but they couldn't answer it for themselves. Only their companions could answer it for them. So it was like really heartfelt and it was a way for me to explore like my anxieties over marriage because I was about to get married and I love my husband. We've been together for seven years, but like, you know, I think it's fair to say as a, a woman in modernity, there are still things to be concerned about. And I, that was me like expressing my anxieties, but it turned out to be fun to play. So that was good. <laughs> Wow. I love how it sounds like between this and the rock game that you gave as examples, that these games are really interesting ways to kind of take yourself out of yourself and think about things and reflect on things from a really different perspective. I guess as I'm saying this, that's kind of what tabletop and role-playing focused tabletop mm -hmm. is in general, actually. I mean, that's definitely my flavor of freeform. There's other freeforms where you like play a robot in the future on a scrap heap and you're forming a culture or like, you know, like whatever you can imagine, it's freeform. So it's it's there. Cool. What was that website again? Goldencobra.org. Everybody go check that out because uh, this sounds really cool. I'm going to right after this interview. So that first game you created, what do you think that said about your design style in general? Well, I think at this point, I have a pretty specific design style. Uh, it's flexible. You know, I work in AAA games in my real life work. So I have to I have to appeal to the masses and I do that very well. But I am very interested in catharsis, in people seeing each other, 
like like seeing parts of themselves that are maybe not the mask that we wear every day and seeing it in each other and connection. And I also am just very thinky and sincere and reflective as a designer. Like I want to take the space and time to really make it like a liminal experience where where magic can happen. I love beat 'em up, shoot 'em up RPGs. Like Rifts was my favorite as a kid, and I still adore Rifts. Like, give me that Tyrannosaurus Rex coming through the portal from Mars. But like yes. when I am creating, I guess I just have like a lot to get out, you know? Like there's a lot of energy in there and I'm trying to trying to release it into the world. Yeah. So related question, what aspects of your life would you say influence or inspire your design the most? Well, I don't I don't think it's a secret. Uh, that trauma really informed Bluebeard's Bride. And that was a delicate and heartfelt process that took a lot of time to get right. Like, I don't think everyone should just jump in to making a game about their trauma. It's a very bad idea. But I was matured enough and skilled enough at that point, And I had two wonderful co-creators that we were able to achieve that. But also, I just feel like, you know, I have a thousand worlds within me. We each have a thousand worlds within each of us. And there's so much in there I don't think I will ever run out of content or stories or people or emotions or expressions that I want to capture and, and share with folks. So you've mentioned Bluebeard's Bride a couple times. I have as well. So for folks who aren't familiar, what is Bluebeard's Bride and what about it makes it a frightening game? Oh, goodness. So Bluebeard's Bride is a horror tabletop RPG created by myself, Marissa Kelly and Sarah Richardson. And it is feminine horror, not not necessarily feminist horror, though I am a feminist, but feminine horror, meaning the horror of the feminine experience in life. And it's based off of the original fairy tale of Bluebeard and his wives that he would murder for being curious. It was a really nasty French tale. And we decided that we wanted to tell the story and really lean into it. Like in some versions of Bluebeard, like the wife gets away and she's saved by her brothers or her sister, or she saves herself in some modern feminist retellings. But we wanted you to like look the abyss in the eye and not be able to escape what that meant. Just like real life people can't escape what that means. And it's funny because when we originally designed this game, when we were in alpha testing, it was way too scary. It, it was way too intense. Like people were like melting down. <laughs> Wait, so, gosh. So what was different about alpha testing? Goodness gracious. <laughs> uh, we had to tone it down. And I actually learned a lot about horror pacing during that time, which is you just can't like full bore into someone for four hours straight. Their brains will just give up. <laughs> uh, you uh-huh. have to disperse it with breaks and with a little bit of hope and with time to recompose or everything just falls apart. So Bluebird's Bride is scary because the game is like a box and we want you to fill it with your fears. Like we don't tell you what's scary. We don't say spiders are scary. Be scared. We ask you what scares you. How are you willing to be scared by it? We'll invite you in as deep as you want to go safely. And people will find their own depth in Bluebeard's Bride. So sometimes it's like a ghosty, scary game. And sometimes it's really devastatingly transformative and like people cry in a good way and they feel new things or they feel catharsis. So it's kind of like, we'll go with you all the way, all the way to the dark core where it's built for that, but you don't have to. I feel like we've been talking about Bluebeard's Bride in, I mean, a really appealing way, but a very abstract way. Um, Mm -hmm. Can you describe the game a little bit so folks understand like, well, what exactly happens while I'm playing the game? Yeah, so Bluebeard's Bride, each player plays a part of the bride's psyche from the original fairy tale. And those are broken down along archetypical, archetypical, archetypal lines. I should know that word by now. So there's several to choose from. There's the femme fatale, there's the witch, the mother, the virgin, and the animus. And the, ad- the animus is like the masculine side, right? Because everybody has both feminine and masculine inside of them. And they each kind of have like their own personality and like their own particular damage, like how they see the world in kind of a twisted way. And they're inside the same head, just like you sometimes have conversations with yourself and you're arguing with yourself. Imagine that blown up to like characters arguing with each other over control of what to do in a situation when you're being chased by an eldritch horror. So in Bluebeard's Bride, 
it sets you down in the fairy tale right after Bluebeard leaves to go on his trip to set you up to basically break his rules so he can murder you. And you have a bad feeling, like, you know, this is no good. And so you, the players, start exploring the mansion. And when you explore the mansion, you investigate objects and you roll to find out things about them. And horrors kind of directed by the GM kind of float up and give you what you want, but maybe not in the way that you want. (laughs) So the idea is to take tokens out of the things that you find and you can choose whether the token is a token of affection, meaning you believe Bluebeard is a great guy and he loves you and everything's fine, or a token of disloyalty, meaning you think he's bad. And the catch is tokens of disloyalty hurt you and tokens affirming that you love him heal you. So you know you're in a bad situation and you want the evidence to prove it, but will you kill yourself doing that? (laughs) It's a really kind of devastating catch 22 where you're kind of just trying to just live to the end to get through it all. But the outcomes in Bluebeard's Bride and something that make it unique is uh, they're fixed. There's only a certain number of ways that this can go. Either you take tokens of affection and you love him blindly and he murders you and sticks you in a room, (laughs) or you try to escape and he catches you anyway. And so this is like, you know, it's a brick wall and the point is to, to tackle it. Mm -hmm. It's such a beautifully nuanced way to tell to tell a story, which I feel like, especially when you know that, that like what the outcomes are going to be like another game that I can think of like 10 candles where, you know, like everyone's going to die at the end. Mm -hmm. Uh, It kind of empowers you to tell like some, the stories that you want to tell. And I'm kind of freeze you. When you're not worried about the outcome, you are pushed into an experiential experience. Mm -hmm. You care about what's happening right now uh, and you care about why it's happening right now. So that is part of the reason why we made that design choice. We wanted you to be in the soup. You've mentioned a couple things uh, in talking about Bluebeard's Bride. Gosh, one that uh, it's it went through significant changes from alpha testing to to what mm-hmm. it is now, and also that like the design process was also a process of pulling from your own past traumas. So I'm wondering, thinking back to the process of creating this game, what were some breakthrough moments for you in designing? Yeah. And and just really quickly, I want to address like when I'm talking about trauma, I'm talking about mine. Like I can't speak for for Sarah or Marissa at all, just so we're clear on that. But for me, the breakthrough moments actually happened really early. So the way this all started is we were at a game jam at Gen Con. I didn't know either of these people. (laughs) And Sarah and I didn't know each other. And we were just kind of randomly paired together. And then Marissa was our facilitator at this game jam. And by the end of that two hours... We had the heart and core of Bluebeard's Bride. We knew what it was about. We felt that, uh, how to explain it, that energy, that vision, that whole, the whole piece of art was already there. And the next two years that we spent building it was kind of like just chipping away at a statue, right? We knew what it was. We knew how it lived and breathed. We just had to peel back the layers until we got to where we knew what it was. And that doesn't happen all the time with every game. Sometimes you don't feel that way. But for us, it was like, we know what this is and we know what we're trying to express. And then from there, we just piled on little victories. Like, um, you know, we had design sessions every week and we knew we were doing well when we like invented a rule or a move or something that would manipulate a player into feeling a certain thing. And we would just cackle like, oh my God, this is so evil. <laughs> oh my God. And we knew it was good. That was like, that was the bar is if we cackled evilly because of how bad it was. Gosh, what do you think it is about horror as a genre that is appealing to people, especially the type of horror uh, in Bluebeards, where it's less like slasher mm-hmm. horror or, or an apocalypse of zombies, but, but, but a quieter, more subtle sense of dread? Yeah, I love horror. I, I've loved horror since I was a little kid. And I like horror because I have all of these big emotions, all of these giant, giant fears and pain and anxiety. And when it's in a film, when it's in a game, it has rules, it's contained, and I can look at it and I can inspect it and I can even enjoy it. It's like defanging a snake uh, (laughs) where 
now you get to look at the snake up close and you get to decide what it is for yourself. And so a lot of people who have been through a lot like horror and some who haven't also do too. But for me, the draw is all of this material is already inside of me. And when I see it out there, I get to have a conversation with it that's safe and interesting and fun rather than being not empowered to do so when I don't have any tools, right, to investigate. Wow, you just actually really helped me understand why I really like horror as a genre in specifically tabletop RPGs. I can't handle (laughs) scary movies. It's like seeing that snake too up close, wrapped around my neck, not, no, don't want, but tabletop RPGs, like put them in a nice glass box of rule sets and safety tools. And Mm -hmm. then you appreciate that snake for the beautiful creature that it is. So thank you for that. So I'm also wondering, especially because you helped create this beautiful expression of the feminine experience and feminine horror specifically, what does it mean to you personally to be a femme both in this industry and in this hobby? Goodness, that is a loaded question. Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I was almost chased out of the hobby, right? As a teenager, it was very hostile. And I adapted to becoming a lady bro for a little while. It was my defense mechanism. And then I was like, "Mm, lady bro ain't so good. Maybe I should not do that. It's a little toxic. And I stopped. But you know, I've had challenges and reckonings with my own femininity over time. Like there are times when I just really did not want to be a girl or a woman. Like maybe not a guy, but just like I didn't want to be it because it wasn't safe and it wasn't fun. And it was just made me vulnerable all the time and I hated it. And then I grew up and around like 25 or so, I was like, all right, I'm just, I feel safe enough. I'm going to be a woman now. (laughs) And that's when I like, you know, started dressing more feminine and like wearing makeup and not tennis shoes every day. And like, you know, I changed. But, you know, in this hobby, uh, we're really underrepresented in terms of creators. Playership is up and uh, it's fantastic. And I'm so glad. And I try to welcome in as many people as I can and mentor as many people as I can and show them like, hey, we're here. There's a way. But, you know, the design philosophy that sort of feeds into all of tabletop is oriented around like specific values. They have to be. There's a value in everything that we do. Right. And our design values right now are really centered on conflict, which, of course, we have to have conflict to have a game, right? That's what a game is. But the conflicts are usually physical, violent conflicts. And Blueberry's Bride is certainly a physical, violent conflict, right? But I think there are so many other ways to play. And I think we need feminine perspectives. We need non-binary perspectives. We need all kinds of POC perspectives, everybody, to say what their truth is, to put it out in the world, what their vision is, so that we understand like the breadth of humanity better. Like when we play it, we feel it, right? And Mm. when a lot of mask folks play Bluebeard's Bride, you know, the reaction I get a lot of times is like, I had no idea it was like that, but I feel it in my gut now, right? And I'm like, wow, that is amazing. And I can't believe we did that. I can't believe we pulled that off. And also it's really important. It's important to them, right? They feel really moved and it's important to the people in their lives that they like get something on a gut level now that didn't have access to before and everybody's better for it. So I'm here to stay. (laughs) Like I'm going to take up space. I'm going to continue to contribute and I want to teach others uh, and I want to show them like, especially like Latina women, like, hey, we're here. When I first started, there were no, there were zero Latina designers that I knew that existed at all. And it kept me from really jumping in at first, like had to be encouraged by my friends. Now I'm like, look, we're here. (laughs) Come, there's a spot for you. You can be a leader. You can be a designer. You can be the boss. You know, I'm a boss. That's I'm a boss of narrative in my nine to five and video games. And so that's if I had had that, how much younger would have I started, you know? So mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. Well, I for one, I'm really glad that you are in this space. As you were talking about how games from designers of different perspectives can show people at least a little bit what those perspectives can feel like. It reminds me of like the beginning of our conversation where we were talking about how cool it is to see the world as a rock. But imagine it as like, as other human beings around you, um, how much more uh, like that could change the world if you can just see things from from that different perspective. I mean, I think that's a really great point. 
As we sort of wrap up this interview, I'm wondering, was there anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about? So it could be projects. I don't know if there's other designers whose whose work you really admire or just anything. Oh, goodness. I was not prepared for this. So I would suggest you check out Freeform Games. It sounds like your community may not know those exist. They're amazing. There are hundreds of really good ones. Just look at the winners every year of Golden Cobra. Uh, And they're also really accessible to design. So I encourage everybody to design games. I don't care if you've never designed a game of your life. I don't care if you've only played D&D. Like make something and then see what you make because you're going to find out more about yourself, but also everyone around you will benefit. So please make games. If you could give folks who are like, okay, well, I never thought about making a game before, but I guess I'll try. If you could give them one piece of advice, what would it be? So because I am, again, a feelings-oriented designer, I would say start at the end. When someone has finished your game and they're getting up from your table, what do you want them to feel? And then design backwards from there. Great advice. So Strix, if folks really resonated with uh, some of the really thoughtful insights that you were bringing up during this interview, want to follow the work that you do, whether it's Bluebeard's Bride or other games you design, where can they find you on the interwebs? On the interwebs, I mostly live on twitter.com, unfortunately. (laughs) Uh, You can find me at the underscore Strix, S-T-R-I-X. My website is linked there with a lot of diversity and inclusion videos, blog posts, white papers that I've written academically about games, and on lots and lots of juicy stuff. I'm going to announce that there's going to be an announcement (laughs) soon about something cool in the tabletop world that I'm doing, but I can't tell you what it is yet. But it's like, I don't know, next week or in a week and a half from now, which is okay. So yes. So probably by the time you're listening to it, that announcement has been announced or listening to this episode, rather, this announcement has been announced. So go follow the Strix to go see what that was. And Strix, just thank you so much for, for making time for this interview and also for just everything you do to encourage other people in this space. Yeah, thank you so much for giving me time to talk. I uh, enjoyed speaking with you and have a wonderful day. Yeah, cheers. If you're enjoying this episode of Behold Her, consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash behold her. Your contributions help us pay our editor, sponsor audio essays, and ensure Behold Her is accessible with transcripts. We have a bunch of new patrons making all of this possible, so I want to say thank you to Latia Bryant, Sarisa, Cheyenne Lovelet, Jess Dempsey, Solar Exalt, Scribe Mind, Katie Budaben, Brianna Romero-Klein, and Lisa V. Thank you all from the bottom of my heart for supporting Behold Her. Lauren Irwin is one half of Salty Sweet Games, where she GMs games of Call of Cthulhu and more. That Salty Ginger tells us why she's drawn to the genre of horror and how her latest project, Missing Annie Lee, captures the genre so well. Hello, Lauren. Thanks so much for coming on to Behold Her today. So psyched to be here. I love talking about spooky things. I know you do too, so I'm really, really excited. Before we get into the spooks and scares, though, tell me, how did you get into tabletop role-playing games? Yeah, so I was in grad school for film production. I wanted to make scary movies and, and learn the theory behind them. And I, you know, grad school is grad school. So I was spending some time actually surfing Tumblr. And I came across kind of fanfic about something called Critical Role. Had no idea what it was, (laughs) but I liked that. And there was a link there to watch. And I binged. It was like the summer between my first and second year at grad school. I binged all the episodes they had so far. I think the first live episode I watched was like 50. And I was just over the moon. I started following tabletop content creators on Twitter I was reached out to by somebody who asked if I wanted to be on a stream. I was like, whoa, uh, sure. <laughs> what is that? And that's <laughs> that's how I started playing kind of publicly. Uh, I also found a home group through Roll20, where I mod now. 
and that was pretty cool. It was actually Curse of Strahd, so right off the bat into the spookies. I didn't realize how much your tabletop origin story really (laughs) is steeped in horror and scares as well. Oh, very much so. So why do you think horror as a genre appeals to you? My mother would say it's because I require constant stimulation. (laughs) She liked (laughs) to say that. But for me, when I'm sitting down to engage with a piece of media, I'm looking for something to kind of hook into me. I don't want to kind of feel neutral after I finish watching a movie or reading a book or playing a game. I want to feel something. It doesn't necessarily have to be positive. Like I'm into being entertained, but I really like the idea that movies and other media can can challenge you to to think and to come at perceptions you might have had differently. Do you remember the first piece of horror media you encountered? Ooh, yes. Uh, (laughs) I was nine. And my parents, I guess, thought it was a good idea to bring me to see Sleepy Hollow, uh, the Tim Burton adaptation. Oof. (laughs) So that, that definitely formed a lot of my tastes. I love period stories. I love kind of high drama and aesthetic a lot. But yeah, I I remember hiding my eyes a lot, but also being fascinated. So that kind of touches on the next question I wanted to ask you. And that was, do you have a favorite or maybe several favorite flavors of horror? Ooh, yeah, I like that question. I mean, like a lot of people who are into... Uh, horror. I consumed a lot of slashers growing up once I knew what they were. Uh, A Nightmare on Elm Street has always been a favorite. And the genre is just so filled with femmes, right? And that was like a big selling point for me. Like all my favorite movies, maybe with one exception, are just filled with leading femme characters. Besides slashers which I still love to this day like especially slashers with the twist I loved like ready or not that recently came out in the babysitter maybe I just like the lead actress a lot now that I think about it (laughs) yeah but but really all all kinds all kinds I love epics like epic horrors pretty great Uh, I grew up reading lots of Stephen King it is probably still one of my favorite stories Mm -hmm. Of all time, read it way too young. Also, when I was nine, and I got it taken away from me. (laughs) (laughs) But it was too late. It was. It was. I was definitely hooked. (laughs) Uh, So, you shifting to tabletop RPGs. What are a few of the horror games you've game mastered (laughs) for? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I was part of the Magpie curated play program. I would run Bluebeard's Bride for them. And that was, I mean, the game is wonderfully designed, super evocative with lots of different kind of spins on the original game. There are different settings and such to make it really replayable. That game is wonderful. I highly suggest, you know, you get a group of people you trust to try it out because uh, fairy tales were also a huge part of uh, my childhood growing up and I still love fairy tales uh, and bluebeards mm-hmm. is the one that sticks with you besides that my favorite horror ttrpg is definitely fear itself by uh, published by pelgrim press that game captures horror so well because it really focuses on being ordinary people in these supernatural and horrific circumstances. I used that for a podcast that I've been running slash co-producing. And Call of Cthulhu, classic. I love running Call of Cthulhu. It is the system I'm probably most familiar with besides D&D 5e. I love running Pulp Call of Cthulhu. So big action, two-fisted, like big drama in the mythos, which is also super fun. But I always make sure that uh, I get the horror in there as much as the pulpy action. What tips would you have for folks on game mastering horror well? Mm. 
establishing your tone and sticking to it. That's not to say that you shouldn't go with tonal shifts. Every good piece of media has tonal shifts because otherwise you would feel exhausted after an hour and a half. But I think especially with a game like Bluebeard's Bride, when I would run it, uh, we would do all our safety and setup together. And then once we started the game, I definitely always made a shift in how I talked and and how I addressed the characters. It was very kind of separate from me as Lauren, who really views GMing as the role of a facilitator. I'm facilitating the story and for, for the characters to do what they want. But yeah, having that that tonal shift to really establish like, okay, we're in it now, really helps set the mood. I think music is also essential for horror especially because that also helps in maintaining the tone that you're going for and communicating that with your players. It's so much about atmosphere. Definitely. Do you have favorite resources for music in games? Well, for the most part, I tend to use uh, Roll20 because I'm doing a lot of streaming. So that's safe to use. But recently I've been running duet D&D campaign of Curse of Strahd for my girlfriend, Allie. And I finally tried Sirenscape. And and that has been so, so cool. I, I love being able to, to use that as we're playing. It's really effective. I kind of want to hit the pause button because you just said you're running a duet <laughs> game. So that's one dungeon master, one player of Curse of Strahd. Yes. That's so cool. Can you tell me a little bit? So I spent some time building a character with my girlfriend, Allie, who's the player. She plays Sophia. She's a celestial warlock uh, with an athlete background. So she is, she is very sturdy. <laughs> I kind of told her some expectations. We had a session zero. We talked about safety and, and what themes... I thought the campaign would probably have, and we built from there. So I think there was a lot of communication about the story right off the bat. I gave her, instead of a sidekick, we use a sidekick in the duet game she runs for me, but I gave her a fully fleshed out third level companion because of how deadly the campaign is. (laughs) I expect her to pick up some NPCs too, though that's not a problem for me. I love having a ton of things to keep track of because it keeps me really engaged. And I'm just kind of focusing the spotlight a bit on her. It actually is really helpful, right? Because we're not uh, spending hours getting sidetracked and just kind of you know, bantering, uh, which I also love. But in a duet game, everything is much more focused. Currently, she just had her Taroka reading, uh, which is was very exciting to get to do in person. I think it's so interesting to do a duet set in Ravenloft Mm -hmm. because Ravenloft is so like every domain is so focused around one particular dark Lord and it's all about their story, all about their backstory. Mm -hmm. So to have one character and the focus is so much on that one character exploring this one other character's dark secrets and this prison that's been built around them. How does that affect the story? I mean, I have been doing a lot of kind of tinkering with it. Um, Mandy Mod's kind of expansion of the campaign on Reddit is a really great resource. The story mostly uh, has stayed the same, but I did like some extra fortunes for her for her character and what she's interested in especially pertaining to her patron who she doesn't know who it is yet um yes very exciting very exciting I've kind of connected her more to the world kind of right out of the gate than I probably would have in a normal campaign Do you have different considerations uh, for if you're streaming a game of horror versus a home game? 
For a lot of my streamed games, I have pretty hard out time. Like we usually don't stream our tabletop RPGs over on Salty Sweet Games on Twitch for longer than two hours. And usually playtime is a little under that after intros and outros. And I think that is uh, helpful. I've been running masks of Nyarlathotep Pulp Cthulhu campaign for exactly a year. And I think if we just played, you know, till our hearts content, we would be exhausted of it by now. As opposed to this home game where the first session we played for five hours and I wasn't tired at all because I could, you know, get up, take breaks, get snacks, talk things out with Allie right there. Whereas with the streamed game, I think having that that constraint is super helpful, especially with a long-term horror campaign. How does that affect pacing uh, in mm. your horror games then? Yeah, so it's it's so interesting. I feel like we're flying through content in this duet game as opposed to in the streamed game where, you know, we've been playing a year and they've gotten through, I don't know, a third of the book which is 666 pages, <laughs> granted. Um, but but we're not tired of it, I think, because we always have like, okay, this is going to be over in two hours. We'll have a week between the session to chill and to plan and to kind of make it what we want. So it's definitely a slower pace for a streamed game, but that lets us keep doing it without getting tired of it. <laughs> So you alluded to this earlier in our conversation, but tell me about Missing Annie Lee. Keep seeing you all post about it. For folks who haven't seen anything about it, uh, what's, yeah, what is it? I would love to tell you about Missing Annie Lee. It's my baby. It's my passion project. Missing Annie Lee is a podcast, an actual play Fear Itself podcast told in two parts with two different GMs and some recurring characters. In the arc that IGM, Vanishing, it takes place in 2008 and follows the teenage friends of the missing girl, Annie Lee, as they try to figure out what happened to her. And in my friend Summer, uh, Summer Matthews, just a summer job on Twitter, she runs the second arc, Reunion, in which Annie Lee returns 10 years later in 2018, and she hasn't aged a day. What? Yeah, and some of her friends come back and they're trying to figure out what's going on all while dealing with this malevolent supernatural entity in this small town of Thornfell, Washington. It's so good. It's so good. We use the the fear itself system. We have a great cast. Uh, Kiana, my streaming partner for Salty Sweet Games, is in it and has co-produced Katie Face from Off the Table Werewolf Fields, a.k.a. Adam Ali, and Margaret Crone. And it is just, I'm so excited. We're in like the third week of release, and it's on all the podcast apps. And it is an epic tale. An epic tale. I got chills when you said that she returns. (laughs) Yes. Um, That's really cool. Are you recording and editing as you go, or has this been completely recorded and you're just waiting for people to experience the story yeah so we finished recording both arcs we finished uh, at the end of november i think right around thanksgiving and then summer and i spent weeks kind of going through and making notes we got music composed art we did a fundraiser through kofi and we did kind of an all-day stream event with the cast and we managed to hit our stretch goal so we get to like do merch for people and everything it was It was really cool. And so now we're kind of editing and releasing as we go. Summer is editing. I am providing feedback to make sure everything is cohesive. And yeah. And yeah, this really is like, it sounds like an immersive horror experience. I really think it is. And I think it's great, especially for folks who like stories. We compared a lot to uh, Twin Peaks and It and It Follows. Those were really big inspirations for us. So it's and I think it's uh, mechanically light enough to where if you're like, I, I don't know like what you mean by an actual play, you can still get into the story without the mechanics like getting in the way. They really just enhance it. 
Can you tell me a little bit about fear itself as a system? Yes. So fear itself, kind of as I said earlier, is about ordinary people in extraordinary circumstances. Uh, The supernatural is real and it is out to get you. The great thing, the thing that really drew me in was that it's very mystery focused. Characters have two sets of skills and one is called investigative abilities. And basically you put however many points the GM says you have into those. And if there is a clue associated with that ability and you have a point in that ability, you get the clue. So you are never like stalled. You never have to kind of stop and, you know, kind of shuffle your feet because you don't know like what you're supposed to find here. You get that clue. It's what you do with the clue that matters. Then you have, yeah. That is so smart for investigative things because otherwise, even if you invest a bunch, say, for Dungeons and Dragons in your investigation skill, if you roll poorly, then you just don't find the information. And like you said, the story stalls. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that can be in anything, right? You miss your perception check, you miss your spot hidden check, whatever it is. And then you're like, well, all right. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Great. (laughs) And you still have in fear itself, general abilities like fighting and fleeing things that you will definitely uh, need. And then you make a test and you can spend points from your pool to increase your number, but you have to say what you're spending before, which is which is great because you have to decide, to, hmm, do I really want to succeed or do I want to risk it? And then you just roll a D6. Um, it's pretty great. So I don't know if there's a way for you to answer this question without <laughs> hashtag spoilers, <laughs> but do you have a favorite moment from Missing Annie Lee that's coming up Ooh, or that's been released? That's a great question. Let's see. I think from my arc, one of my favorite moments is when the characters go to this gas station that's never really owned longer than six months in the town and they meet a certain character well one of them does and it is one of the the spookiest creepiest npcs i've played and i i just enjoy it so much for the spooks. There's a lot of emotional stuff, especially near the end, but that, that's one of my favorite creepy moments. What a spooky yet mundane setting for that uh, introduction mm-hmm. as well. Uh, just oh, a yes. gas station. Yeah, it's just a gas station. What, what is spooky about that? I guess it's like everyone's coming and going. It's sort of like this liminal space. Oh, gosh. Okay. Oh, definitely. And there's a there's a veneer over it. It um has some secret spaces within it and it's not exactly what it appears to be when they go inside. Oh, this is, this conversation's getting eerie now. I'm <laughs> <laughs> For now I can't wait to listen to Missing Annie Lee. Yay. I'm probably going to do that this afternoon. I'm wondering, do you have thoughts on feminine or feminist horror? And would you say those are two separate things or just different ways to say the same thing? Oh yeah, what a great question. I lean towards them being different ways to say the same thing. I think that can depend a lot on the creative team. Something I'm passionate about, especially right now in tabletop, is being okay with playing femmes who are flawed and maybe not always doing like, you know, like being the ideal of of a feminist, right? Like, Sometimes people internalize misogyny. Sometimes they say things that are mean toward other femmes, like, and making them real and having space for those kinds of characters as well. I feel like you're, you're touching on my next question mm. um, already, which is what does it mean for you personally to be a femme in this tabletop space? <sighs> and such a public facing one at that. Totally. I think I, I hold myself to... A pretty high standard when it comes to marginalized genders representation, like on our channel and in the projects I do, it's always at the forefront of my mind. It's never an afterthought because I think there are so many extraordinary talented people of every gender. And I just want to make sure that 
our stories, the marginalized genders are highlighted. So it is definitely at the forefront of my thoughts when I'm working on something. I mean, and thank you for putting in that work. Um, At the same time, it is work, right? I feel like marginalized folks end up having the burden of being marginalized, but then also being the folks most invested in breaking down those barriers. Oh, totally. And it's great because my streaming partner, Kiana, we kind of hold each other to, you know, those standards and always being um, mindful of making our space as inclusive as possible and being active about it. So as we start to wrap up this conversation, I wanted to check if there was anything I didn't ask you about that you wanted to talk about. Um, This could be upcoming projects or a particular game you're really excited about, anything. Ooh, ooh, excitement. Well, I am, I'm having like a horror party right now, I feel like, between Annie Lee and between my Cthulhu campaign and now my my home campaign and I just cannot get enough. I'm a particular game. I'm trying to think. I know there were a couple that came down the Kickstarter pipeline that I've been looking at and backing, but I'm just, I'm like all the games. Kian and I have a plan for an upcoming stream that we're pretty excited about. And I know there are going to be some, some horror games on there maybe more fear itself because i love it so much so yeah yeah all right well then for folks who are really excited about this upcoming game and all the other things you're working on where can they find you and where can they find out more about what's to come yeah you can find me on twitter at that salty ginger and i also stream over on twitch.tv slash salty sweet games our twitter and youtube are also salty sweet games Uh, Yeah, some exciting, exciting stuff coming up there. And of course, Missing Annie Lee is available on pretty much every podcast app, Spotify, Apple, and more. You can check it out there. Thank you so much for geeking out about horror, horror games with me. Heck yeah, it was awesome. Erica Fassett never outgrew playing pretend, nor stopped listening to the multitude of character voices in her head that now drive her creative writing process. In her spare time, she likes to howl at the moon, corral her trio of pugs, a server pug, if you will, and engage in mysterious rituals totally not meant to summon extraplanar entities to the prime material world. Nah. Last Call by Erica Fassett Simply put, the phone was cursed. Avery, one of the regulars at the One Trick Pony, had brought the phone to Randall's attention, just minutes after two in the morning. The grizzled bartender had been collecting empty glasses and beer bottles from the tables while late-night news played on an old CRT-style TV that was mounted to the ceiling in a distant corner. Do you recall who left it? Randall had asked. Not really, Avery replied, offering a half-shrug and knocking back the rest of their scotch. It added another glass to the rapidly growing collection being tossed into the double sink behind the bar. Ever since it had been left at the bar, it had been nothing but trouble. No one could recall the patron whose selfies littered the camera roll, even though Randall swore he had seen them time and time again. Something about the woman's face seemed familiar, but not with enough acuity to pinpoint or recall a name. The few remaining patrons in the bar had wandered in late after what had been undoubtedly a celebratory bar crawl. By the time they had arrived, they were pretty well plastered and the random woos being exclaimed as they asked for increasingly intensive frozen cocktails. No bartender enjoyed making frozen drinks. They were such a pain in the ass and it only made Randall increasingly irritated. To make it worse, none of them even closely resembled the woman whose face littered the camera roll, which dashed his hopes that maybe the absent-minded owner would have returned to claim it. It was going to be a long night. He just knew it. Last call! Randall yelled out before pointedly looking at the gaggle of co-eds whose mouths were already open to ask for another frozen margarita before he cut them off with shots, wells, and drafts only. As the final orders came in and the crowd began to disperse, Randall turned off the TV, turned off the lights, and cleaned up the ungodly mess someone left in the bathroom. After all of that, all that was left in the silent bar was Randall and the phone. It was blissfully silent, 
and Randall took the moment to take a deep breath and enjoy the moment of peace. Until the phone suddenly rang. Without even thinking, Randall picked up the phone and swiped his finger across the screen to accept the call. Hello? At first there was nothing on the other end, just dead air, and the very faint sound of someone breathing. Hello? he asked again, his voice tired. Please? came the tiny voice from the other side. Please, don't hang up. The voice sounded familiar to Randall, just like the face of the woman whose phone had been left behind. But once again, he could not place it. Look, ma'am, this isn't my fault. The voice faded as there was a sudden high-pitched screech of static, and Randall yanked the phone from his ear and held it out at arm's length until the phone stopped screaming. As it went silent, he brought the phone back up to his ear. Look, as I was saying, this isn't my fault. A different voice interrupted him this time. You have until dawn. It was low, clearly being distorted through some means. It did not sound remotely human. Until dawn? For what? Look here, buddy, this isn't my phone. Follow the instructions exactly as you receive them. If you do not, there will be consequences. There was a sickening sound of bones breaking, followed by a blood-curling scream of a woman. Jesus Christ, Randall exclaimed, nearly dropping the phone as he jerked away from the receiver's end. Do you understand now, the voice inquired? Stealing his resolve, Randall brought the phone back to his ear and with a hoarse voice responded, Yeah, tell me what I need to do. This was the last time he ever clevered for the closing shift. Just what the hell have I gotten myself into? Was the singular question Randall repeatedly asked himself. After the phone call, Randall had tried return dialing the number, but the phone was completely locked out. No emergency dialing, no access to any applications, not even the camera. In short, it was a useless piece of scrap, save for it being the sole lifeline for whomever the woman whose life was in his hands. The demands came through messages from the phone's notes app. Randall could not type anything back, so it was a one-way communication pipeline. If he so much as deviated from the prescribed route from the person on the other end, he would receive another phone call and hear once more bones breaking and screams echoing through the alleys. Whoever they were, they were able to track him. The first instruction was to find a package in a green dumpster south of LaGrave Avenue in Weston and to deliver it clear across town to a set of GPS coordinates. Finding the dumpster in question was easy, but it was overflowing with refuse due to the holiday delay in the pickup. It took the better part of an hour, but Randall soon found the neatly sealed package. Almost as soon as he had picked it up, the phone buzzed with another message and address. The night went on and on like this. Pick up package at point A, drop off at point B, lather, rinse, repeat. There seemed to be no rhyme or reason to it at all. What did this have to do with the woman who was being held hostage, whose bones were being broken every time Randall made a misstep? It was those sorts of thoughts which kept him going. Whoever this woman was, and whoever this cursed phone belonged to, Randall had an obligation, no, a duty, to follow through. He did not spend years in the Marines, leaving his brothers and sisters in arms behind when an operation got tough. He trucked through it then, and he certainly was not going to stop doing that now. Sometimes, Randall cursed his sense of duty, and even if he was tired after pulling this double shift, no one, not even a perfect stranger, deserved to be abducted and harmed on account of him. As dawn approached and the last package dropped off on the far side of town, the phone buzzed one last time with a set of GPS coordinates. It took him far out of the city limits proper and more into the rural sprawl, where neighbors were a few miles between one another, if you had neighbors at all. Randall parked where the road ended abruptly, the coordinates directing him further into a wooded area. The closer he got to the destination, the more the adrenaline had begun to pump through him. He was exhausted by the whole night's events, but most of all, he was on edge and about ready to snap. Coming up to a break in the bush, he heard a muffled, Hello? And his eyes quickly scanned the area, looking for its origin, and his eyes found a singular woman, a blonde whose face and hairstyle matched the selfies on the phone. Hey, it's okay, I'm going to get you out of here. Randall tried to be as soothing as he could as he inched closer to the woman, the pain of the broken bones writ across her face. The closer he got, the wider her eyes grew, as did the panicked tension in the air. Randall was so focused on trying to get to this woman 
this perfect stranger, that he failed to notice what had come up behind him. As he arrived at the final coordinates, the phone buzzed one last time. It was just a simple smiley face staring back at him. You can find more about Erica and her work at ericafacet.com. That's E-R-Y-K-A-H-F-A-S-S-E-T-T.com. Thank you again to Jeff Stevens Games for sponsoring Erica's audio story. And also thank you, of course, to Erica, Lauren, and Strix for sharing all of their stories with us. Remember, if you love hearing these stories from femme gamers, you can help make Behold Her happen by supporting patreon.com slash beholdher. Behold Her is just one of several awesome femme-led podcasts over at Penwich Studio Podcast Network. If you like Behold Her, I think you might like Fake Geek Girls. Stick around a minute to hear more. I'm Missy. I'm Mary. And we're Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. That means we combine our love of pop culture and critical theory, asking important questions like, does Venom represent the Jungian shadow self? Maybe. And what does Legend of Korra have to do with modernity? More than you would think. Fans and critics isn't just a fun phrase for us. We legitimately love all of the things that we cover, with a few notable exceptions. Looking at you, B-movie. For us, criticism doesn't mean pointing at why something is bad. It means engaging with pop culture on a deeper and contextual level. Also, Missy truly loves to read dry academic essays. It's it's true. Check out Fake Geek Girls every week at fakegeekgirlscast.com, along with the rest of the excellent shows on the Penwich Studio Network. <laughs>